All right, hello everyone, and thank you for joining us for this week's Load and Sports Outlier session. My name is Matt Pajak, co-founder of Load and Sports. Just a reminder, check out the Load and Sports blog for more info on our upcoming guests. Set those calendar reminders, and we'll see you right back here next week for the last Outlier session of 2021. Quick plug on what Load and Sports is: we are the affordable human performance data provider. We use non-exclusive objective athletic evaluations for the purposes of tracking athletic development, informing athlete health, and identifying outliers. Our evaluations are non-sport, gender, skill level, or age specific. They are for anyone and everyone. If you're interested in learning more or getting in touch, visit our website at loadinsports.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at loadinsports, and read our blog, which is also available through our website. The Outlier Sessions have been created as a way to bridge the gap and create a connection between the aspiring and the achieving. All of our guests have a niche at the highest levels of baseball and are an outlier in their own right. And we want to take some time to talk about long-term athlete development, LTAD, in the context of their experiences, their processes for taking care of themselves, and get to know a little bit more about their personal interests as well. With all of that being said, we know you could be so many other places other than right here right now so thank you for spending your thursday night with us especially just before the holidays we hope you're able to take something you learn here and apply it in your life this session will be broken up into two parts for the first part we have a series of questions for our guests for the second part for anybody that's hanging around we'll invite you to join the conversation and now fresh off the plane from vacation in jamaica which has been canceled I'd like to introduce the newest member of the St. Louis Cardinals 40-man roster, a guy who wore six different jerseys in 2021, Brendan Donovan. Thank you for joining us this evening. How's it going, guys? Um, for those of you that know me, good to see you again, Matt and Sean. We'll see you guys soon. Uh, for those of you that don't, my name is Brendan Donovan. I'm 24 years old. Uh, come from a military family. I was actually born in Germany, uh, but we bounced around. Claim Alabama is home for right, for right now. I live in Madison, Alabama. Went to Enterprise High School in Alabama. Um, growing up, I played for an organization out of Tallahassee, Florida called Next Level Baseball. Spent three years at the University of South Alabama. And now I'm just, I'm excited to be here. Excited to chat with you guys. Awesome. Before we really get going, a couple of things I do want to call out. Brennan will be hooking up one person in the audience uh, with a signed baseball. So make sure you fill out the link in the Google form in the Outlier Session chat on your left to be eligible to win. The winner will be contacted tomorrow, most likely. Additionally, we'll be sending out an email in the next day or so for all attendees to claim their free POAP NFT for this session. For those of you who aren't familiar, a POAP is a proof of attendance protocol or simply a digital ticket stub. If you're interested in receiving the email, fill out the Google form that we have posted in the Outlier Session chat. All right. Let's get it going. Loden Sports is in the process of building an LTAD, and as such, we are going to open this up with a couple of our staple LTAD-related questions. Our LTAD will be an inclusive, holistic, and philosophical reference guide for developing athletes of all sports and levels of aspiration. In our eyes, everyone is an athlete. Yes, even the parents and coaches. We can all find joy enjoyment in sports in a number of different ways for the entirety of our lives. So we'll get it started with the topic of emotional well-being and the importance of gratefulness. There are little things we can do every day to bolster our emotional well-being. It's like a muscle, it needs to be trained. We've done this with all of our guests so far. Build good habits, do this today and every day. Brendan, tell us three things that you're grateful for today. Um, first of all, I'm grateful for the luxury of another day. I think sometimes we don't take that for, we take that for granted. So. Very grateful for that. Two, I've got an amazing support group, just an amazing group of people around me. I'm grateful for that. And number three, I think the ability to continue and grow and learn every day in life, I think that's extremely important. How about you? I'm going with uh, being able to get out, move around pain-free every day. I think that's something a lot of people take for granted when they're not in pain, is that when they go run around or they do stuff, they're not in pain. There's a lot of people that live with pain every day. So um, moving around pain-free every day. Eye doctors and their prescriptions for my contacts and glasses so that I can see because I'm pretty sure without glasses or contacts, 
uh, I'd be pretty blind and I would be a danger on the road. Um, and then finally the holiday season and the opportunity to see my family. Um, because, you know, obviously living in North Carolina and then being back in Massachusetts, that's not something that I get every weekend. So definitely looking forward to that this weekend. Nice. Um, transitioning into my favorite element of our LTAD and, uh, no pressure here, Brennan, because, you know, some of the previous ones we've had have been pretty simple, but I'm still waiting for that big splash from someone who comes out of left field with this one. Um, this is a concept introduced to me by my friend, Matt Pierce. Uh, he referenced it from talent code by Daniel Coyle. It's ignition in our LTAD ignition is a key pillar to athlete development. It's what lights the fire for the developing athlete to want to participate in sports. So parents, teachers, coaches are all equally responsible for shaping the developmental environment. Um, who, it could be one person, it could be many in your life, helped drive the interest in the sport of baseball for you when you were younger. Um, man, I could sit here and I could list off a bunch of names, but honestly, it comes down to my mom. Um, when, uh, when I was five and it was time to start playing some recreation sports, I had a friend that said he wanted to play baseball or t-ball and my mom goes, Hey, Blake said he's playing t-ball. I said, Blake's playing. Sure. I'll play. And she's like, okay, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. So my dad was deployed in Iraq at the time we were living in, um, where were in Clarksville, Tennessee. So my mom was the, the person that taught me how to throw, how to swing a bat. And according, this is this is her words because I'm I'm so. Uh, it was a long time ago, so it's hard to remember. But she said that she'd have my brother and I out on the field, and she'd be whacking balls off the tee, and we'd be working on our defense. So that's that's her claim to fame that my brother and I were had a successful baseball career and are still playing because uh, because of her. But no, I think she's the one that sparked the fire for me. Shout out to moms. She hits a mean fungo. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, I think that's why I like the outfit so much. Damn. <laughs> Roasted her. She's not even here to defend herself. No, um, she hits it too hard. That's why. Yeah. Do you think it could have been any other sport, or was it always baseball for you? Um, I think I think it. I think I fell in love with baseball from when I, I met it. I think on a baseball field, people have the luxury of being their own, own type of player. Um, and there's just a kind of simple beauty in the game of baseball. Like it's catch it, throw it, hit it. And I think you could put your own flair to it. I think that's why people fall in love with it. Awesome. Well, let's move away from the LTAD and let's kind of talk about your college experience in the 2018 MLB draft a little bit. Um, our first player guest was a first round pick out of high school and was committed to UCLA. Our second player guest was committed to an SEC school at the age of 15, played for the USA 15U national team. You played college baseball at South Alabama, a really good non-Power 5 school. So your early journey is unique to these outlier sessions. How and when did the opportunity present itself to go to South Alabama? Um, so I was kind of under-recruited in high school. I was always a pretty good player, but I think I was a little bit confused the concept of a late bloomer. Um, I was always pretty raw. I just don't, I just think that I hadn't grown into some of, some of my abilities yet. So I was playing after my junior year of high school. I was playing summer ball and the um, the Whirlwood bat. And South Alabama sent the recruiting coordinator, who was Jerry Zuli at the time, out to see me. And I had a good showing. And being from Alabama, I hadn't really heard a whole lot about it. Obviously, it was Auburn, Alabama. I lived close to Troy. Um, so I hadn't heard a whole lot about South Alabama. And they had me down on a visit. I went down there and I... It was kind of a hidden gem for me. I fell in love with the with the campus, the ballpark, the coaching staff. I can't I can't say enough great things about Mark Calvi. I mean, he's like he's one of the best coaches I've ever had. He pushed me to be the best version of myself. I got I developed there. I think I became a better person. 
Um, I mean, we still talk all the time, and I still go down there to train um, before every spring training. Um, man, I, I couldn't take anything. I mean, what I took away from there is just irreplaceable. So I'm very fortunate enough to have that. I know some people... They're, they get blinded by the concept of a big power five school, but I think going anywhere that you can play and you can develop and you can grow as a person and a player is the right place for you. Yeah, I mean, in South Alabama, it's, to your point, kind of a hidden gem. Uh, a lot of good players come out of that school, um, you know, so obviously take nothing away from that. But, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of kids um, and a lot of parents – you know, as they're getting into high school and they're starting to look towards, you know, playing at the next level, you know, everyone's so fixated on the power five. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why your story is so important is to show that like, look, you know, you're, <laughs> you're in a big league dugout for a playoff game at Dodger stadium um, in uniform, you know, not just, you know, there is auxiliary staff or whatever, like you're a guy who, really got all the way there and obviously there's there's still so much more for you to accomplish but let's let's go back to south alabama and let's go back to to your freshman year of college and you took a really good freshman year at south alabama springboarded into a monster sophomore year where you hit 336 your ops was over a thousand uh something that's that was trendy for you in in college you walked a lot more than you struck out when did the Cape Cod Baseball League opportunity come together? And I kind of want to talk about this just because, again, the Cape Cod Baseball League is the premier summer collegiate opportunity. And, you know, here's a guy at, again, a non-Power 5 school getting that opportunity. So just kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, so I, I played summer ball after my freshman year. I went to the Valley League, and I liked it. It, it was different, and it was something that I knew I needed to do. I think I developed. So now I was looking for the next step up. Um, that fall, I'd gotten contracts to go play in the Northwoods League, but I I turned them down, and I waited it out. I, I knew or I was hoping that someone was going to give me a contract to go play in the Cape. Um, halfway into my spring season, I got a phone call from Ron Polk, um, and he said, hey, we're going to offer you a temp contract. You can come play for Hyannis um, if we like you. For those of you that don't know what a temp contract is, you get, I believe it's, it's either 10 or 14 days of guaranteed time on the Cape. And then at the end of your temp contract, they can either put you on a full contract or they can say, all right, thank you for your time, and you go home. So it's a little bit of a gamble, but I was uh, willing to bet on myself. So I went on the temp, ended up making the team. Um, and I mean, the Cape is what, what you'd expect. You're facing the best arms in the world. You're seeing some of the best hitters, amateur hitters, amateur arms. So it was, it was a little bit of an eye-opener. I mean, it was, it was everything that I'd hoped as far as competition-wise. Yeah, and I think to fill in uh, a little bit more on being a temp on the Cape, so typically the temp players are the ones who – their seasons end before everyone else's seasons end. And that's because a lot of schools are obviously still playing into regionals, super regionals in Omaha. Um, and really a lot of the guys on the Cape that make rosters after being temps really only make it because someone else whose roster spot was guaranteed decided after their college season that for whatever reason, whether it was, you know, they were beat up or they reached their innings limit or they're going to play for Team USA, they decided not to go. So, um, you know, first off, there's no guaranteed spots for any temps. And then, you know, obviously when a rare spot opens up, you have to kind of be the guy who was really hot for a couple weeks to earn that spot. So um that's just like a little bit more context there for exactly what you were up against there. But obviously you played the whole summer there. Um, what did you learn on the Cape? You know, maybe about baseball, maybe about yourself, maybe about life. So I had a kind of a, a tougher road than a lot of the players do on the Cape. So it's a, it's a big time developmental league. Like people will go there 
you can, I think you mentioned it can really help or hurt your draft stock. Um, so for me, just being there from a non-Tower 5 school, no matter what I did, would have helped me because I was, like I said, under-recruited in college, a um, little bit of a little bit of an underdog. But for the first time ever in my baseball career, I really learned about politics. Like it's it's a very political league, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, but obviously, guys from the bigger schools they have the luxury of getting those those full contracts per se, and you know when they make a promise to that coach, like yeah, this guy's gonna play, then he's gonna play every day. So I was kind of the guy that had to fill in where it was needed, so my bats were a little bit spaced out. So I learned a lot about myself too. I learned I probably didn't. I I wish I would have. I guess own the role a little bit better Um, instead of being like, man, why am I not playing? I wish I would have just said, okay, this is my role. Um, It's just for the summer. Let's take advantage of these at bats. Cause I started thinking, well, I haven't played in, it's been a week since I've played, you know, or I I haven't had an AB in a couple of days. Like, Oh, this, it's a pinch hit. This guy's throwing 97 and being like, okay, this is, this is my opportunity. So I learned a lot about myself and I learned how to, moving forward the importance of buying into your role because every opportunity is important yeah i think that kind of fits you to a t um because that's pretty much been your story in pro ball and we'll get a get to that a little bit later on but just kind of like hey you know wherever you have to put me to to get me on the field and get me in the lineup Um, and obviously it doesn't hurt that you hit everything. Um, but uh, kind of the last thing I want to touch on with the Cape, and you, know, you kind of mentioned it, it, it is a place where draft stocks can go way up or way down. And you said, you know, kind of being a non-Power 5 guy, like anything you did up there was going to help you. Um, you know, for anybody who's listening, you know, feel free to go look it up. Baseball reference, Brendan Donovan. Uh, not the best stat line. Shield your eyes. Uh. Uh, up on the Cape. <laughs> did you, uh, you know, in August you finished up on the Cape. Did you like, how did you view your stat line? You know, did you feel like there was, you left it all out there? Did you feel like it was a missed opportunity? I mean, there's so many different ways you could look at your portfolio basically from that summer. And, um, you know, obviously whatever it was only continued to propel you upward, but just kind of talk about that a little bit. Cause I think a lot of people freak out after they feel like they missed an opportunity. Man, it, uh, that summer stung. Um, so besides my freshman fall, I had, I'd never really, and like a little bit here and there in my freshman year, just because it was like a learning curve, but I'd never really struggled like hard before. And then I got up to the Cape and, you know, I had my flashes here and there, but I was like, wow, like I'm, I'm struggling hard. Like, what can I do? to look at this summer, let's find some positives, let's find some areas that I needed to work on, and then let's build on that. So I think I was looking back at the stat line, and I don't, I try not to, I don't think I've looked at it since because it was just such a nasty reminder of of, of how brutally I struggled. But I think there was more walks and strikeouts, which something that I pride myself on. I was like, okay, I manage the zone, right? So... I think I hit a couple homers, two, three homers. I was like, okay. So I managed the zone. I showed some pop. So what were the areas that I was lacking? For me, it was, I missed a lot of fastballs. I was not on time for fastballs. Okay. Let me see what's, all right. Maybe there was just, maybe my turn wasn't tight enough. Maybe my path was a little bit off. So taking all those things into account. And I think sometimes especially this game's so negative. It just beats us up all the time that we got to find little positives out of everything. And, and we don't ever lose. We just learn. So taking that tough summer and how can I turn that into positives for me? So I, I took that stuff and I went back to school and I went back to the drawing board. Cause that's, I mean, yeah, we're going to get knocked down, but if we can just keep working hard and growing, then we're just, we're only going to continue to develop and grow. And I think that if we can get through something like that and, find some success after that. I think it helps our mental side too. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you talked about earlier being a late bloomer and, 
you know, something that we talked about a little bit earlier this year in one of our blogs was an ode to late bloomers and kind of the, the hammer to nail point in that blog was development is nonlinear, you know, and over the course of your development, you need those failures. You can't just be a front runner constantly. Otherwise you've got nothing to learn from. So, um, you did go back to school after your Cape summer, as guys do. You had a solid junior spring. And then the Cardinals grabbed you in the seventh round of that 2018 MLB draft. What was the draft process like for you? Um, and just kind of talk about, you know, were there other clubs that were interested in you? Did you have a chance to go higher or lower? Kind of what was your expectation through all that? Um. Coming off a pretty solid sophomore year, I had, um, I think I met with over 20 teams that fall. So I, I had the, I, I had an idea that I was going to get drafted. I just didn't know when. Um, we we're thinking it was going to be top 10 rounds. I knew that for sure. Um, with a good year, I think I could have gone as high as, I mean, some people were saying the third round to the fifth round. And then, like, if I just, that would that would have been like a another repeated sophomore year if I would have hit three thirty with a thousand OPS, then that was best case scenario because our schedule was only going to get tougher. Um, that's how Coach Calvi did it. He those RPI games we would travel a lot more just so we had a chance of getting into a regional without having to win a conference tournament. So I met with a bunch of teams that fall. Um, the Cardinals popped me in the seventh round. The scout, Clint Brown, I still have a great relationship with him. We still talk all the time. He was awesome. He made the process easy. Um, but one thing I do want to touch on is during those scout meetings, and a lot of the question was, what happened in the Cape? What happened in the Cape? What happened in the Cape? And just constantly being reminded of obviously struggling kind of left me with a sour taste in my mouth. So... I was supposed to go higher than what I went. I went in the seventh round. So I think it's important for every player to figure out what type of player they are. I mean, for me, I was felt like I was trying to make up for what I didn't do in the Cape. So I'm just standing at the plate and I'm trying to hit homers, trying to hit homers, trying to be someone I wasn't. And if I would have just stuck to getting on base, scoring runs, putting balls on the barrel and all those things would have happened naturally. But instead I was trying to do too much. And I think for anybody listening, one thing, I, if you take anything away from this in your players, find what you're good at and do that to the best of your abilities. Don't try to be a different type of player because that's only going to hurt you in the long run. Um, but I'm very fortunate to be at the Cardinals organization. They do things the right way. And hopefully this next year, uh, I can help them continue to win because it's a, uh, it's the organization is just full of rich history. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point there, um, and I think you know there's a lot of parents out there that and you've probably encountered this at every level, especially not just with the players that you played with in high school and college, but also at the pro level where you know. A lot of the guys you play with, they've been told their entire life, like, you're the best player on the field. And they feel a sense of entitlement. Like, you know, I played shortstop in high school. I need to go play shortstop in college. I need to be a shortstop in pro ball. Like, that's my position. Oh, you want me to play second? Like, no, I'm the shortstop, you know? Um, And I'm sure you've got plenty of stories of guys that you played with that were kind of like that. And I think you know, to your point, finding out who you are as a player and kind of accepting, you know, you talked about a little bit with your Cape experience, like accepting your role. Um, Because ultimately, you know, as a seventh round guy, that's kind of how you carve your way up. It's not through like, hey, I only do this and this. That's how, you know, that's a one-way ticket out of the organization. Um, Not a professional baseball. Um, When I was drafted, I was drafted as a, a third baseman. Um, but the same year we'd also drafted in the first round, Nolan Gorman, who's one of my great friends and he will be a household name. If you, if you already don't know him, then you should pay close attention to who Nolan Gorman is. He's, he will be a perennial all-star. So he was a third baseman too. So that spring training, they come up to me and said, Hey, we, we're going to move you to second. 
And I was like, okay, that's fine. That gives me an opportunity to play. Um, if not, I, if I would have said no, then I'd, I'd have been stuck in extended spring. So, okay, that's fine. So I go to low A. No one plays third. I play second. So finish that year out. Then COVID hits everything. So we, I think it was 20, this past year, we signed Arenado, who's also a third baseman. So Nolan, uh, Nolan, Aaron Otto's a third baseman, so Nolan Gorman now becomes a second baseman. So I'm sitting there like, um, where do I go now? Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play over these two. So that's how I kind of had to jump into the utility role. So those kids out there play every position, hit everywhere in the lineup, get used to everything because that stuff is a lot more valuable. If you can play everywhere, if you can hit anywhere, you can do anything on a baseball field. It, it is very, very valuable. Yeah, I think that's incredible insight because, you know, I can speak from, you know, my personal experience watching Nolan a couple of years ago with the 18U national team. And I don't think I would have ever told you that he was going to end up at second base, but that's just kind of, you know, as you get closer and closer to the TV league, then, you know, names like Nolan Arenado kind of pop up in front of you on the depth chart. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, it's a, do you want to put on the uniform or do you want to put on the uniform, you know? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you got to swallow your pride and do what's best for the organization. That's right. So uh, it used to be the case where anyone drafted outside of the top five rounds or so was kind of a long shot to make a big league roster. But it kind of feels like there's a trend towards more mid to later round guys, not only making it, but making an impact at the big league level. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about, you know, from your perspective, the opportunities that currently exist in player development to outperform a later draft. And I'll specifically, before you get into it, you know, talk about the 2018 seventh round that you were drafted in also had Joe Ryan, who's a big leaguer with the Minnesota Twins, and Jaron Duran, who got called up uh, for the first time this year with the Red Sox. And he'll likely end up having a, a lengthy big league career himself. So, um, yeah, kind of talk about the, the current state of player development and, and the resources at your disposal. So I think the, one of the main differences between, like, the high rounders and the mid to late rounders, and I think the, the high rounders are just a little bit more polished at the time. Um, maybe... I mean, obviously, maybe the skill set is a little bit more impressive. I mean, I had a, I went to school with a first rounder. I mean, he's, I mean, a five tool player, absolutely. So those tools jump off the charts, but I think opportunities are key. I mean, as far as player development goes, you go play 140 games, you're going to get better. I mean, just playing and playing and playing and honestly failing going back to the drawing board, struggling, going back to the drawing board, having success, okay, building on that. I think all of that is part of development. And and as far as, like, moving through the minor league system, it's pr production is key. If you can produce, then you'll continue to play this game for a long time. Uh, I think making the most of out of every situation, um, I kind of live by three things. Um, I, one, it's work hard. Uh, two, be a good teammate. And I think the last one is just prepare and the rest will take care of itself. So if you can live by those three things, I think, I think you'll be in a good place. I mean, big leaguers, there's plenty of people that have, I mean, there's first rounders in the big leagues. There's, I know there's not 40 rounds anymore, but I'm sure there's 40th rounders in the big leagues. It's just pr producing at the right time and just helping the organization win. That's, that's ultimately how you play for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point. You know, the the best defensive center fielder of this generation and one of the greats of all time, you know, at least from a defensive standpoint, Kevin Kiermeyer, you know, 30th rounder out of a JUCO in Indiana. You know, Jacob deGrom, I think, was a 10th rounder. Um, you know, Shane Bieber, obviously a Cy Young winner. You know, that, that's a fourth rounder. So, you know. Yeah a whole bunch of examples anywhere you look. And then you've got, you know, even going beyond that, undrafted guys and guys that signed years after the international deadline 
you know, it's signed for ten, fifteen thousand dollars that, you know, go look at the Houston Astros roster and there were three guys who pitched in the World Series who signed after their eighteenth birthday um internationally for less than twenty five K. So um not many of those guys usually make the big leagues, but it happens more often than you think. And the guys that get drafted at the top of the draft, um, you know, a lot of them make it, but, you know, they're not necessarily the guys that are, they're not all having 10-year big league careers. So, um, yeah, I'd, let's let's kind of jump a little bit and, and let's talk about your year in 2021 because it was pretty damn impressive. Um, you had about as good of a year as anyone in minor league baseball. Uh, first 25 games in high A, you made it look easy. Then you get promoted to double A, and in 50 games, you put up even better numbers. And of course, you spend the last 33 games of your minor league season at triple A. After struggling initially, you end up hitting 288 with an 885 OPS. How did you somehow get better after each promotion when the competition is supposed to be getting stronger? Um, I think at every level I went to, I think I saw it as a little bit of like a boost in confidence. Um, and that is, that is a powerful thing. Um, before the season started, this is something I want to touch on. I, I was really working on the mental side of things. Um, something that I, I thought was important, but I never really dove into it before. I started changing the way that I spoke to myself. I started being a lot more positive. Um, one thing I do is I, even if it's a terrible game, I try to find a positive and everything. What did I do today that, that I'm proud of? Like something, something small. Um, I mean, cause it's such a game of failure. If you let it beat you up, then you're, you're just going to continue to struggle. Uh, I know this is easier said than done. Nobody, like none of us have it. None of us have it figured out. And honestly, we never will, especially in the game of baseball, but I think that was one of the things that allowed me to continue to play well um, at each level. But another thing is, as I as I moved up, I started to be around some some of the more brilliant minds in baseball. Being around guys that had seen Double A, had seen High A, had seen Triple A, even with the Taxi Squad, I, getting to pick their brains is important. And I found something that I could prove on at each level. In High A, I got it's guys that are still working on command so i was getting a ton of fastballs uh, obviously guys are starting to work on off speed so I was like okay and then when i got to double a guys were able to start flipping in any pitch in any count so i started i was able to work on the approach there and then when you get to triple a it's the whole kitchen sink in any count there's no tendencies they can throw sinkers they can throw four shamers they got five different pitches so for me it was just approaches and building game plans and learning how to stick to them i think that's what helped me it, it allowed me to stay consistent through, uh, from i double a and then to triple a yeah and i think that's really good insight because i think the casual fan or even the more than casual fan of the game of baseball isn't going to fully understand not being there in the box every single night at each level what the difference is between you know, low A, high A, double A, and you kind of broke it down in terms of what, you know, pitchers are throwing at you and, and what to expect. You know, I think unless you're a pro scout, you're probably or playing the game, you're probably not 100% aware of why the game gets harder at each level. So uh, thank you for that. And, you know, a note on your speaking more positively to yourself and pulling one small thing, regardless of the outcome of the game and regardless of how you did in the box. I remember years ago reading about um, how Jack Nicklaus, who's one of the all-time great golfers, how he defined a good round of golf. And it wasn't about the score. It was if he hit one or two shots in his round of golf exactly how he intended to hit it, it was a good round of golf for him. Um, and I think that is really, to your point, so powerful to be able to latch onto positivity because that'll give you a little extra pep in your step when you get out of bed the next day. Um, and I think you see, you've probably seen a ton of that. I think, you know, people who watch the big league game or they watch college baseball on TV, they'll see that where guys get into slumps and, um, 
the you know the game is really mental it really is um you know everyone has the ability to hit but a lot of it comes down to what's between the ears so um you know kind of talking about obviously your season you know you go from high a to double a to triple a uh people in st louis took notice because you were named to the taxi squad for the wild card game in los angeles what was it like being in the dugout for a playoff game at dodger stadium that place is electric um even asking some of the guys they said this is probably the craziest place they'll play um so we got to practice there two days before and um me and kramer robertson another guy was on the taxi squad we're taking ground balls and i just looked um i just took a second it was his he was up for a ground ball and i just kind of looked around i felt like i was in a fishbowl i didn't realize how big that place was and there was nobody there at the time so i was like man i can't imagine this place when it's packed out so the next night the next day we show up for bp and people are starting to fill in and we take our ground balls and we go in the outfield we're shagging and holy this place is filling in quick um then we go out there and we do the uh like the, the anthem and everything and we're standing on the foul lines and i'm looking around and there are there are so many people here. This is incredible. And then it was a good game. About the seventh inning is, I mean, they, they're standing up from the first pitch. I think the total number of people, there's 55,000. I mean, people just screaming. I mean, they're cheering for, for every pitch, every strike. They're going nuts. Every out, they're going even more crazy. And it was, a, it was heartbreaking for those guys, the way that they lost, or the way that we lost. But I will say when... When Chris Taylor hit that, hit the homer for a split second, uh, when the ball left the bat and the place went quiet and everyone was just watching, it was eerie. And then when they realized it was going to be a homer, the place exploded. I mean, it was shaking. It was in, I don't know. I mean, a winner take all game like that, that being my first exposure in the big leagues was just incredible. I, I don't know if that can be topped. Hopefully. Hopefully it can be top, but that was that was intense. Yeah, I was gonna say for that to be your first uh, big league experience, being Dodger Stadium for a playoff game. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's gonna look a little bit different when you're playing a a Tuesday afternoon game in Pittsburgh. <laughs> Hopefully it's, it feels like nothing, man. <laughs> yeah, but I think um, I don't know. I just. I kind of got lost in your story there for a second. So if it doesn't work out in baseball, you can be a you can be a storyteller if you want. <laughs> um, we all got to have a backup plan for everything, right? Yeah, there you go. Um, but it was good, man. It was it was definitely a good learning experience. I couldn't. You can't you can't replace that for anything. That was awesome. Well, that that gave you all the energy you needed to to go into the off season, or at least maybe it gave you a quick a quick boost that you needed after a full minor league season. Um, the card season obviously ends in a one-game playoff. You go home for two days, and then you're back out to the Arizona Fall League. Uh, you've played a ton of baseball this year. You're tired. And then you go hit 308 with a 941 OPS. At what point does the battery need to recharge? Um, by the end of every year, your body is going to see a little tired. Um, but we do our best to maintain as much as we can throughout the season. Never see you get a little nicked up here and there, but I think it's after a week or two, your, your body's fine. I think you need more of like a mental recharge. I mean, you're, you're competing at such a high level every single day that you just need a minute to step back, reevaluate, let your mind recharge, and then you're good to go. Cause you do so much stuff throughout the year i mean you're constantly you're doing prehab stuff you're doing i mean you're doing extensive warm-ups you're doing recovery you're doing cold tubs you're just trying to sleep as much as you can so the body the body holds its own as long as you eat right and you do all those things but i think it's the mental system that really needs to recharge after the season for sure and the fall league's a pretty unique experience um not just for the baseball itself but for kind of everything that surrounds it. 
you know, every team's kind of its own little all-star team. But outside of playing against a lot of high-level prospects, we've talked about your experience in Glendale. And, you know, tell us a little about what you learned during your time in the Fall League, and maybe it wasn't all on-field related. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you played some of these guys throughout the minor leagues, and you kind of you get excited. Um, there's a couple guys that I played from the Dodgers organizations. I was like, man, I can't wait to ask them questions because they did nothing but torture us all year. Like maybe I can pick something. So start talking to guys about hitting philosophies. Um, one of the guys that I tried to pick his brain a lot was James Altman. He's with the Dodgers also another seventh rounder. Shout out to those seventh rounders. Um, he just got put on the 40 man for the Dodgers too. Awesome dude. Uh, him and Jacob of who also got put on the 40 man, uh, picked their brains a ton about hitting. Um, I took round balls every day. We started third, we'd go to short, we'd go to second, and occasionally we'd slide over to first. And a great Kessinger and I with the Astros organization. So you're you're sitting there, you're rolling double plays, you're talking about, hey, footwork, um, do you like to drop step on your double play feet to short? No, I just try to keep my feet squared. Just little things like that. Um, so you're you're learning. It's just a constant learning experience. And then so you take those things, you take little things from everybody and you can add them into your your cage routines or your defensive routines that you do during BP. And then we, before every day we'll be hitting the cage, we did prep work. And um, a part of the dynamic stability protocol that Matt wrote for me, we did a lot of, it's like single leg holds. So I, I walk in the training room, or not the training room, the uh, weight room one of my first days and I see some of the Dodgers guys walk over and they grab a foam pad. I'm like, oh, cool. These guys do it too. Um, and they grab a, an aqua bag. It's just a, a bag. It's like halfway full of water. And they start doing their holds with that. I'm like, really? All right, let me try this. So I, I when no one's looking, I grab a bag and I, I'm like, I can do these holds. No problem. I grab the, the water bag and I pick it up and it just immediately tip over. I was like, okay. So started adding that to my routine. And I think it's, just little things like that. By the end, um, I did roll my ankle. I believe we'll touch on that in a minute. But I think doing stuff like that allowed me to um, recover a lot quicker. But you can take little things like this from everybody and add them into your routine. Um, that's something that we talked about with the, the aqua bags that I still do. Um, just adds a little bit of extra dynamic stability into our routines. Yeah, and, and you touched on it there uh, briefly. I think... <laughs> I think the water bags are genius. Um, and I think, yeah, anybody who's interested in looking into that, look into, um, oh man, the guys from the Netherlands, Franz Bosch. Franz Bosch, I believe, is the one who is big into the water bags. Um, but we crossed paths last fall. That's kind of where we met. Uh, we kind of hit it off right away. And most of it was, you know, because you were very open to new information. Um, but we spoke about the importance of balance and dynamic stability which for people listening, dynamic stability is balance in motion, pretty much. And you were eager to attack training balance. So before we get into the training itself, give us a quick rundown on how you filter new information. You know, because obviously you didn't know me. And then within, you know, a handful of conversations, you know, we're getting into balance and dynamic stability training. There's so much of it out there information-wise and the right information can be really helpful and there's information out there that may be communicated the wrong way can be harmful so how do you decide as a player what's important and what you need to listen to right and i think i mean especially you see it all the time in pro ball is like everyone's trying to put their own brand on you like they want to be oh i'm the reason why this guy has his success like Everyone's trying to give you their own little thing. But for me, I like to see, like, I like to see the data. I like to see the stats. I want to see facts. Like, does this really work? Is it a placebo? So for us, when we started diving into it and we, you worked out the microgate equipment and I could see immediate feedback, I was all, I was on board. And I, I trust the data. I trust you when it comes to reading the data. Uh, you taught me all about it. And I mean, it, it gives you immediate feedback. And I think we also, we brainstorm and we found something that works for me too. Um, I mean, none of us have everything figured out. I think when it comes to 
I wouldn't say be closed-minded. I think it, having a growth mindset is important. But you want to you want to find stuff that gives you like realistic feedback. Um, for for me, I need to see data. I need to see statistics. So having the microgig equipment is is important. Yeah, and and I think you know it's hard to argue with numbers. Um, but I also think that a lot of what you did and the reason why you found benefit in it was because you bought in and, and you took it seriously. And I think, you know, from my standpoint, I'm aware of a lot of the benefits of balance and dynamic stability and how that translates, not just in baseball, but in all sports, but, you know, you can't, I'm, I'm not you, I'm not the professional baseball player. I'm not the person who, you know, this can benefit, you know, necessarily in that way. I mean, there's other ways that balance and dynamic stability can benefit any human being as they get older, because, you know, we all do get older. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that really struck me about you was, you know, you decided that this was something you wanted to attack and you gave it your all. And, you know, I think the numbers show that it paid off for you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about balance and stability and, you know, specifically on a baseball field, you know, how does it translate and, and what are some of the different ways that you train balance and stability? Yeah. So a lot of stuff that we do yeah. on a baseball field is you do on one leg. I mean, whether you're a toe tap, a leg kick, whether you're a hover, I mean, you're starting on one leg. Um, so if you don't have the ability to stabilize on one leg, you're not going to be consistent. Same with thing with pitching. You pick up on one leg and you, you work down the hill, but you also have to think about the leg that you're planning on. If that leg isn't equipped to handle the force that you're putting into it, you're subject to injuries and you're also subject to not being consistent again. So that's extremely important. I think another thing I think it keeps us healthy, if you have... Let's say you're running. If one leg is producing more force than the other leg, then you're subject to injuries. Those deficiencies can start working against each other. And you're also losing out on a ton of athleticism that you didn't know you were missing out on. So all that stuff is important. And I think by cleaning up these deficiencies can allow you for more force reduction. So I'm a huge believer in it. We do, we do holds. We do jumps. We do holds with our eyes closed to improve proprioception. We... Um, we'll do stuff with, uh, these little, we call, they're called witty Sims lights where you're having to pick out a green three out of a bunch of different symbols. You got, you're called man in the box. You're jumping on one leg and it's all completely random and you just got to bounce around on one leg. So you're adding some change of direction and you're changing and you got some, like a mental, like you gotta be able to recognize things and go side to side you got to go north south east west all these things and i think it it keeps me the biggest thing is just staying on the field i think it keeps me healthy it keeps me strong because if i can stay on the field that is so much more important because then you become reliable and that's what you got to have in this game and i think maximizing athleticism is also important i mean big leaguers are the best athletes in the world so if you can maximize your athleticism that's gives you a chance to stand out yeah, and I think, you know, you kind of hit on it there a little bit. It's basically exercising a bunch of little stabilizer muscles in your legs that help you be more efficient in delivering your power. And if you're not exercising them using, you know, static balance or dynamic stability exercises, then they're not getting any work. And they're muscles that can help you. But again, if you're not exercising them, then they're not helping you. So it's stuff that everyone can do and it can help everyone. Um, but it's not going to appear in a lot of the standard training that a lot of not just baseball players, but athletes of all sports go through when they're in the weight room. So, um, yeah. And, and you kind of touched on it there, you know, the importance of maximizing your athleticism. Yeah. I think athleticism is a huge piece of keeping up when the game speeds up. And, you know, I think you can speak on that a little bit. 
you know, not just how the strategy and, and kind of what's being thrown at you changes from level to level, but kind of talk a little bit about like, as you get promoted from level to level, the how the level of athleticism changes and kind of how the speed of the game changes. Um, you know, maybe you don't have as much time to make that throw across the diamond because everyone's running a little bit faster. Um, talk about that at all? Yeah, no, everything's sharper. Um, outfielders' arms are better, so you got to cut the bases a little bit better. Catchers behind the plate, they, I mean, everything's on the bag, so your jump has to be that much better. Even pitchers' pick moves, they're sharper. They're kind of, they're trying to cut down their times to the plate. They're mixing in holds, so you got to be able to go from like from just an absolute standstill to as quick as you can to top speed. Um, I mean, guys are getting out of the box better, so you got to be able to organize yourself, even maybe throw on the run, be under control. It's everything is that much sharper. So, and I think it, I think it, you see it big time in the box. Guys are, I mean, if you're, if you, athletes are able to do things when, even when they look, oh man, how's that guy? He's like, he's not under control. Maybe sticks his butt out and he dumps the ball into the outfield. Like that's, to me, that's athleticism. And how can, how can you maximize that? How can I just let my athleticism take over? I think all that is extremely important. Is there anything, and I, I know that this is, you know, asking you to dig deep here, but is there anything you would have done differently or you would have told, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old Brendan Donovan in terms of training your athleticism at that age or taking it seriously? I think something that, you know, I've experienced, we've experienced with Loden, experienced previ previously with USA Baseball is a lot of kids at 12, 13, 14 years old don't really understand how athleticism translates on a baseball field. They just can't make that connection. Um, and I'm not just saying 12, 13, 14, but into high school as well. But kind of the juxtaposition of that is that that's such an important developmental window. That's where you can make your biggest gains in speed and power and quickness and all these different things. So, um, yeah, is there anything you would have told yourself if you could go back in time and to take this stuff a little bit more seriously and maybe do something different than you did? Yeah, I would say um, take a ton of pride in the little things. By little things, I mean the mobility, stability, balance, because all that stuff. Now, I call it like the the little boring things. Now, I, I don't find it boring anymore. But if you told me when I was a kid, hey, you need to focus on your mobility, I'm like, no, I'm fine. Or you need to go stand on one leg. I'd rather go lift some weights or I'd rather go run some sprints. But so you get older, you start to realize that like, that stuff is, is a lot more important. So, yeah, just take a ton of pride in the small things. Awesome. Well, let's go back to the, uh, you know, some of the jump data that we were talking about. And, and we're going to talk about it from kind of a different use case here. But, you know, going back to last year, we got a baseline on your jump data. You know, we did the counter movement jump test, the three rapid jumps as high as you can, as quick as you can. And ever since then, you've regularly evaluated when possible to track where you're at. How does the jump data fit into your processes? Um, so we use the jump data before I start my off season. Um, so we did it. We did it right before the fall league. Okay, where are we at? Did I lose anything during the season? I mean, we do our best to maintain, but you're playing 140 games. You're going to lose something. Your body's just going to get a little tired. So where am I at? How like, do I have any deficiencies? Am I pretty close to even? Okay. All right. Let's generate a program to go from there. Um, I mean, having the microgate is, is extremely beneficial because it gives you immediate feedback. Um, like I said, I use it before I start on my training and we use the that generated dynamic stability protocol that cleans up all all deficiencies. Does it feel good that after a full season in playing, yeah, I think you only missed a, a small chunk of the minor league season because of a concussion, but you played all year, you played at three different levels, yeah, you wore a whole bunch of different jerseys, like 
to evaluate right before spring training and then to evaluate the day you get back from Los Angeles and see that you really haven't lost all that much. Does that, like, how does that mentally kind of, where are you at when you see that? Because, you know, obviously the, the off season's about to begin and, you know, in previous off seasons, you were going in blind. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's huge. I mean, as much information that you can gain and is, is important, but the biggest thing is like, you want to be able to produce all year long and you can't produce if you're, you're losing muscle or you're losing power, if your body's just breaking down on you. So having that, seeing where I was at the beginning and then where I was at the end of the year is a big confidence booster. That means that the, the programs that we have going for me right now are, are working. And that, that's what I mean by, for me, filtering data or filtering information. I like to do it through data. And so that data proves that it's working. It's not a placebo. I know it's working. It's a big confidence booster for me. Yeah, I think that's huge because, you know, I know you said it before you retested just after your season that you thought your body was pretty run down. And, you know, that's maybe that's what everyone's told themselves at that point in the year. And maybe that's just the normal thing to tell yourself at that point in the year is that I just played a long season and my body's beat up and, you know, I've got a lot of work to do this off season to get it back to where it needs to be. But, you know, for you to jump in there and it's, it's almost exactly where it was preseason. I think that, you know, it does a good job of cutting through what your mind's telling you versus what reality is. So, um, the other thing I kind of want to touch on, you know, obviously you hopped in there, you did a, your jump testing right when you got back from Los Angeles and two days later you go out to the fall league. So it's in that window, you rolled your ankle while you were out in the fall league and you missed a few games. How beneficial was it to have the single leg evaluation touch point before you went out there um, and kind of talk about what the data showed pre-fall league and then immediately post-fall league in your most recent touch point. Yeah, for sure. So um, the um, before I went out uh, to the fall league, we tested, and they were pretty close. It was 11-4 and 11-6. 11-4 on the left and 11.6 on the right. That's just um, inches, just jump height, uh, single leg jump height. So I went out to the fall league, rolling a double play, came down, Guy came in and kind of had a little collision, rolled my ankle. Um, so missed a couple games with that. So immediately I just started to, okay, how can I clean this up, get back? First of all, I let the swelling get out of it. Um, just start to move it around, um, get some stability back into it. Uh, not a big fan of tape, but we did tape it for a little bit just to give it some extra support because I was coming back pretty quick. Colleagues are... Uh, it's only a 30 games um, season, so I wanted to get back out there as quick as possible. Um, and then when we came back from the fall league, I tested again, and the left leg jump height went from 11.4 to 10.7. So it was a pretty big drop off. And that was after playing on it for three weeks and feeling like, okay, yeah, it's, it's back to where it was. But seeing the data, I was like, okay, I really need to get to work on this. So we generated a, a program that, I mean, in my left leg and we've been hammering it now so and then we tested it again and it was 11.4 right right after the season now it's back to it's 11.7 so after the season before the fall league 11.4 after the fall league after i thought my ankle was healed and went down to 10.7 and our last test back up to 11.7 so it's actually improved so you can make big strides with this balance stuff if you just hammer these reps and <laughs> not easy when you feel like your glutes are always on fire and your foot cramps, but I think it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, you know, for you, especially at the early stages of the off season, you know, for you coming off the fall league, you roll your ankle, you kind of get back into the swing of things and you think everything, you know, like, Oh, I'm straight. Like, you know, I don't have to worry about this ankle anymore. I feel better. And then you immediately get back and you start doing sprints and you start, you know, loading heavy, on your off season lifts and everything like that. And it kind of out of sight, out of mind. That's exactly the type of thing that, you know, it's June or July next summer. 
like it pops up again because it was never fully healed, right? So um, let's go a little bit beyond tracking and monitoring jump data into a couple other things. You know, I know we approached the hour, um, probably have you know four or five more minutes and then we'll kind of jump into that next part. So thanks to everyone for sticking with us. But I know you track and you monitor your sleep. Uh, you showed me, you know, <laughs> you know, your your sleep data from the last couple of days after um, some food poisoning in Jamaica didn't look great. Talk about the importance of sleep. And then for all the people out there who might not understand all of it, talk about what the sleep data showed following your concussion this summer. Yeah, so I, uh, I use a whoop watch. Uh, for the for those of you that don't know where whoop is, it's just a little strap that you can put around your wrist, ankle, bicep, whatever. Um, it prints out a sleep report. It, I mean, it gives you so much information. It gives you your disturbances, your efficiency, your respiratory rate. It gives you like effective your sleep was. It gives you heart rate variability, resting heart rate, skin temperature, all that fun stuff. So I use it as a way to. Oh, it, it also gives you like your body strain for the day and how many calories you burn. So I wear it in game. I wear it 24 seven. So I use that to determine how much sleep I need. Um, it has its little sleep coach on it tells me how much sleep I need. And I take a ton of pride in my sleep. Um, before I go to bed at night, I put on blue light glasses. Uh, I'm not a big fan of melatonin. Sometimes I'll take some magnesium at night before bed. Um, but I, I, during the season, I sleep for a while. I mean, I'm probably getting a little bit over nine hours of sleep at night. If I feel like I need more, if I wake up and a little tired, I'll go right back to sleep. Um, I think that is extremely important. I mean, we we're talking right before we started the Discord. Like, if you could produce a pill that generated all the like positive effects that sleep gave you, then it would be considered a PED. So, I think. People that don't take pride in your sleep are, I mean, you guys are crazy. I mean, it allows your body to recover. It primes you to exert force and it keeps, it lowers you, it lowers your chance of injuries. So I saw that. I noticed that big time after my concussion uh, in July, I was playing left field and I ran into a wall and just absolutely crushed my head, missed two and a half weeks. Um, and I noticed that in my recoveries, my recoveries were way down after I hit my head. I was, it was harder for me to go to sleep at night. Um, and then when I was sleeping, it wasn't very sound. I was waking up a bunch. Um, feel like I needed more sleep. I was always tired. So, and then as I started to take my concussion tests, I'd stare at a, a screen and then I could get headaches and I feel like I needed to sleep more and more and more. So I kind of, didn't need a concussion test to tell me when I was healthy. I could just go based off of my sleep. All right, I, I got to bed at a decent hour. I slept soundly. I feel good today. And then once all that happened, I knew that I was I would be ready to go. And then I took my concussion test and I passed it. So I didn't notice it big time until I whacked my head against the wall. Unfortunately, that sometimes you got to learn the hard way. Yeah, and I think it's really cool that you were fully bought into tracking your sleep up to that point. Obviously, you didn't doubt the importance of sleep up to that point. But when that happens and, and you face a concussion, you know, you, you can look at data that you've regularly been tracking on your sleep and you can see that things are off. And then as things start to progress, you can track towards, oh, like, I think I might be ready to go attack this thing again. And it goes back to just having the, the data, the hard objective data that says, all right, I'm confident that I'm back to where I need to be. Um, kind of in the same vein of, you know, the jump data. So uh, we touched on a whole bunch of different things and, you know, it is, I'm cognizant of the time. Um, one last topic before we turn it over to the crowd. First off, congrats on being named to the 40 man roster just before the lockout. I uh, can't really think of a better way to cap the year that you had for the aspiring baseball player listening to this conversation. What is one thing that they can do starting tomorrow to set themselves up for success, whether it be on or off the field in their future? Um, this was hard for me to grasp. Um, in the game of baseball, we really have no control 
I mean, we hit the ball and then it's out of our control. We throw the ball, it's out of our control. We can't reach out and adjust where it's going at all. So we can only control little things. So I think it's important to focus on the things that we can control, especially going into our, our work. Take a lot of pride in, in the work that goes in. I mean, we can be selfish and we can be perfect in our pre-work, our cage work, our lifting, our defensive work, etc. We can take we can take pride. We can be as perfect as possible in that. So when it comes to the game, we just turn it loose and have some fun. That's about the only thing that we can control in this game. So why not take a ton of pride in that? Awesome. Well, Brendan, you packed a whole lot of knowledge into an hour-long conversation. Can't thank you enough for taking the time, especially two days before Christmas, to hop on here with us. 